Hello and welcome to Max Politics with Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have a great conversation in store for you here on this episode. If you've missed any of our recent discussions, uh, please do check those out at Max Politics wherever you get your podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. We've recently spoken with New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli, among some other really good guests about all that's happening in New York politics, especially Governor Andrew Cuomo's announced resignation and the presumptive next governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, set to take office uh, just a few days after we're talking here. Uh, But the way things move in New York politics, you never know what's going to happen. But I am here on Friday, August 20th. Very happy to be talking today about a really important issue happening in New York government uh, related to the excluded workers fund that was passed in the last state budget. And I'm happy to be joined by assembly member Carmen De La Rosa of upper Manhattan and Bianca Guerrero, the campaign coordinator for the fund excluded workers coalition. Thank you both for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Welcome. Welcome. So there's a lot going on with this fund. The application process is now open. Uh, there are some things that the coalition and elected officials and other allies are asking for to be changed in the process. But before we get into all that, let's just zoom back out and talk about the creation of this fund, the effort to get it created. Uh, Assembly member, will you give us a little background on sort of how this came to be and what it and what it is? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this really, this fund grew from the pain that we witnessed in our communities at in the depths of the COVID-19 pandemic. When everything started to shut down, we began to see the bread lines and the pantry lines in our communities wrap around the corner. Um, but there is always a face of someone who is suffering that doesn't get the attention that they need. And that face happens to be the face of undocumented workers throughout the city who at the height of the pandemic did not have any access to either uh, unemployment benefits. They had no access to food stamps. They had no access to the Trump stimulus funds that were coming in at that time. And so they were left basically with nothing. We got together and started to see what other states were happening at the time. California had come out with a very small fund. Uh, I think it was $25 million, $125 million for undocumented immigrants. And we knew that that was a drop in the bucket based on the needs that we were seeing. So we got together, Make the Road New York, New York Communities for Change, and a bunch of advocacy groups uh, across the state of New York that really said, we have to create something. At the time, we were having conversations about the tax structure in New York City um, and how billionaires were actually making money as our communities were dying. And so the Fund for Excluded Workers uh, grew out of that necessity. It grew out of the need of directly impacted people that were literally knocking on our doors and asking what could they do to put food on the table for their kids. And Bianca, tell us about your coalition and and when it formed and how it formed and what it is and the, and the sort of overall arc of this effort to get this fund created. Yeah. So the coalition uh, is a group of 200 plus organizations across New York state that mostly serve uh, immigrant populations or workers in general. Um, It includes, as the assembly member mentioned, Make the Road New York, New York Communities for Change, the Street Bender Project, which are all based in New York City. 
along with organizations in Westchester, namely Community Resource Center of New York, Worker Justice Center uh, up in the Mid-Hudson Valley in, in upstate New York, Columbia County Sanctuary Movement. Um, those are some of the organizations that are help driving um, our strategy and whatnot as we move th as we move through this campaign. Um, the assembly member nailed it. It happened. This the genesis of this campaign is the pantry lines where people were forced to get food um, as charity instead of being able to get some sort of economic support from either the state or the federal government. Um, and it happened. The from that sort of terror that grew out of what is my family going to do? Organizations started calling legislators, started phone banking, um, holding press conferences, really demanding dignity for these workers, um, demanding that it's not charity, but the government's responsibility to provide economic support to these workers. So through, again, sort of typical uh, political organizing like phone banks and marches and whatnot, folks shut down bridges. There were two hunger strikes this March, 23-day uh, hunger strike in New York City and one in Westchester, um, simultaneous shutting down of the Manhattan and the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, folks also took over the, the Mario Cuomo Bridge at some point earlier in 2020, um, just pretty militant actions to make sure people know excluded workers are not going to take the situation lying down. They're going to demand dignity and the support that they deserve um, just as much as any other New Yorker um, and tying that into the economic crisis that's happening in this country, right? As the assembly member mentioned, folks are making record profits during this pandemic as our delivery workers, our restaurant workers, domestic workers, um, construction and day laborers are left with absolutely nothing uh, while they are the true engines of our of our economy. So that's sort of the, the history. And, and this really started, as you mentioned, pretty soon once things shut down in 2020, yeah. but it took quite a, quite a bit of time here for this fund to be created. Um, how many New Yorkers statewide are we talking about here who um, you've estimated were locked out of um, the federal pandemic relief that was coming through and the state relief that was coming through that this fund was was created to to help. I can take a shot at that answer, Carmen, if that's okay. Cool. So we're estimating that there's 290,000 workers across the state that will benefit from the Excluded Worker Fund as it is set up. And that's an estimate that our partners over at the Fiscal Policy Institute have um, provided based on just like a preliminary analysis of what was included in the budget language. Mm -hmm. And and that's the workers themselves. There's obviously family members that often depend on the income that was being generated or lost um, that this fund is meant to at least somewhat replace. So assembly member, you, 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 uh, drafted and, and led a bill on this in 2020. And then the bill to create uh, this fund wound up basically becoming part of the state budget this year in, in 2021, correct? And Yeah, correct. Well, um, Senator Ramos' uh, team, I have to give them a shout out, was also instrumental in the drafting of that legislation. And we worked with impacted community and the advocate groups to kind of perfect the language around what we needed. Mm -hmm. And to get that into the most recent budget, how challenging was that in the legislature? Was it about getting the governor's buy-in? Was it about convincing your legislative colleagues? How did that come together to, to get it over the finish line where it was part of this new state budget? And the ultimate fund, correct me if I'm wrong, has over $2 billion in it. 
Yes. So it was a little bit of everything. I want to say that, you know, the conversations really uh, took place during budget negotiations, but the pressure that had to be created to even get this to be a blip in the radar of budget negotiations happens externally as well. You know, I remember over a year before budget negotiations started, we slept on the ground, you know, uh, Senator Ramos, Brad Lander, myself, and many, many impacted families um, on, on the sidewalk in front of Jeff Bezos' apartment to send a message that, you know, our communities were in dire need. Uh, the workers themselves, as as Bianca mentioned, they went on hunger strike, right? So we had to create a moment of political pressure where it, it wasn't enough that we were just funding, you know, small business relief and rental relief. We also needed this fund in order to make sure that people that are traditionally excluded from all of those uh, sources of income and, and assistance were able to get the money. So, you know, as ne negotiations ramped up, of course, the conversation turned to our colleagues, I was surprised and shocked um, towards the end of budget negotiations when people said they never heard about the fund before. Uh, the fund was covered extensively in the media. And we had to deal with people who, you know, said things like, you know, there are no undocumented people in my community. Uh, of course, to that, uh, we said there's undocumented people all over the state of New York. Uh, people have to be cognizant and awake to the suffering of these people. They're the people that take care of our children, clean our homes, are, are the support staff in uh, restaurants and the construction industry, and they exist everywhere. And so we had to break some of those myths. Um, and really the notion that we were taking from a group to give to another. The pie uh, that we're splitting is a multi Billion dollar pie. You know, the state budget in New York, uh, the state is bigger than than, than the budgets in, in, in small countries, right? And so this idea that we had to pick communities against each other, education versus fund for excluded workers, for example, we had to break with, with those narratives and really let the the pain and the suffering of the people that we were seeking support for speak. So, you know, the the strikers went up to Albany seeing those strikers in wheelchairs because they could no longer walk, uh, protesting in the well of the New York State, uh, uh, you know, office building was something that for me struck a chord, uh, should have struck a chord for many of our colleagues who were, you know, on the opposing side of the legislation. And eventually, um, you know, leadership rose up to the challenge. I have to say that I had many colleagues who served as advocates in inside, talking to uh, ways and means staff, talking to leadership, making sure that people understood what we were trying to accomplish, because it wasn't enough to just create a fund. The fund, and Bianca can, I know, talk more eloquently about this, the fund was supposed to be pegged to the unemployment benefits that all of us uh, were entitled to receive, because this was also about equity, right? Mm -hmm. um, every New Yorker deserved financial support in the same way that the federal government opened up, you know, the pandemic unemployment insurance for uh, freelancers. Uh, they were a, a community that was also marginalized during this pandemic, you know, undocumented and non-traditional workers also deserved that help. And so it was important to get it right um, so that people could have access to it. Yeah. And go ahead, Bianca. I was just going to mention on that piece, right? We were pushing for 
for excluded workers to get parity with other workers, where, where we ended up with negotiations, the original man, demand was $3.5 billion for this fund. We landed at $2.1 billion, and that is completely funded by the state, completely funded by the new revenue raisers, partially um, pushed by the Invest in Our New York, like tax the rich package, right? Mm-hmm. Again, that economic, the parallel between people getting profits and, and other folks being pretty much left to die. Um, Where we landed is the fund is broken up into two sort of tiers. The first tier provides $15,600, which you see that money, it's like, wow, I've never got a check for that much. Well, if you've gotten unemployment, you probably actually have. It's just been dispersed. The $15,600 is equivalent to $300 for every month. And it's really important to remember a lot of New Yorkers got $600 for some months just from the federal government, from the federal unemployment boost. And then the second tier is equivalent to the stimulus checks that folks um, provided uh, or were provided by the federal government. And that's $3,200 in total for the sum of the three checks. So just to put so, some- so, Yeah, so just to be, right. So just to be clear, you mentioned one thing, which I, which I was about to ask that in some ways, people were tying this fund to the- fairly small increases in income tax rates for, for wealthy New Yorkers that were passed as part of the budget. And then, and then absolutely, I wanted to ask, there's, there's these two tiers. So this fund is one-time mm-hmm. allotments, correct? One-time so- emergency, emergency pay, it's a one-time emergency payment. It's not replacing people's wages. Again, it's just either the 15,600 or the 32, Hundred dollars. There's no in between. It's not a sliding scale. Right. And so, can you tell us, Bianca, in terms of the eligibility for the two different, what what makes or breaks someone uh, able mm-hmm. to to get the larger benefit here to uh, replace lost lost wages uh, versus the the smaller one? So, to be clear, neither one of them is replacing wages. Right. It's it's not you're not getting an amount of money that's equivalent to the direct amount of money that you lost. To be eligible for the fund, you have to certify that you, at some point during the pandemic, you lost at least 50% of your income, as well as other things, other eligibility requirements. Mm -hmm. Um, For how you get into that first tier versus the second tier or vice versa, it really depends on how much documentation you can supply in in your application. So for example, there are documents that are worth five points, and you need five points to get into that top tier, which include a letter from an, an employer testify or uh, attesting to the fact that you lost income because of the pandemic. Um, additionally, you can provide a tax return from certain tax years, the most re- three recent tax years. You can provide uh, a certain amount of pay stubs to demonstrate your work history, um, W-2s, 1099s, a wage notice from your job. If you're not able to get into that five point tier, there's three point documents. Um, that are mostly tied to like evidence that you've been paid, whether that's through Venmo, Zelle payments, or like bank statements of transfers and stuff that have been made into your account, showing you've been paid by other people. And then there's one point documents and um, that are less onerous, um, but still can't get you alone to that to that top tier. Um, and, and so this is all going through the New York State Department of Labor now, the language in the state budget that was sort of agreed upon after the legislation that the assembly member and mm-hmm. her Senate colleagues had sponsored previously, as we said, got sort of changed, altered into the budget, which happens regularly in New York, um, where there's there's big budget agreements on many issues, policy and funding and otherwise. 
Um, and then uh, key, key parts of this were left up to the State Department of Labor to issue regulations. There's been some problems around that. Let's get to that in a minute. But we're talking about New Yorkers who need to apply through the State Department of Labor here. Uh, and do you have a sense, uh, either of you or both, in terms of what kinds of jobs, what kinds of work are most likely applicants are going to be able to access the larger grants versus the smaller ones? Who, who are we talking about here? Or is it really, you know, sort of hit and miss in terms of what people are able to get from employers or what kind of, you know, proof they're able to, to bring together? I think that, uh, you know, we purposely left things a little open for the Department of Labor and the Commissioner of Labor to make determinations. But I would imagine that we're talking about, you know, agricultural workers. We're talking about uh, restaurant and, and hospitality industry workers who have been, you know, completely left out when small businesses closed. We're talking about domestic workers who are no longer able to access the houses they clean or the children they care for because they, you know, because of the pandemic. Uh, so, I, you know, those are catch-alls, but I'm sure that there is some varying degree of work. Uh, immigrant labor in this country, let alone in this state, drives a lot of the economics here. So I don't know if, Bianca, you want to talk specifically about some of the workers that engage with uh, your organization as well. Yeah, I think it is um, easier to define the group of workers that are really going to struggle to get Mm -hmm. into this fund. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is mainly folks who are paid in cash. And it's less about the particular industry, but more about like what sort of documentation does your employer give you that you are actually employed at their at, at that workplace. So workers who are paid in cash don't have the pay stub, the wage notices, those tax forms that I've mentioned. They're not paid through the regular deposits showing that they have a specific employer, those transfers I mentioned, and their employers aren't going, are really unlikely, we've heard this from across the state, employers are resisting providing a letter saying that they, acknowledging that they've paid someone off the books. Um, These circumstances are not ones that the employee, the worker chose, right? These are circumstances your boss chooses how to pay you. Um, And so we really do not want people paid solely in cash, paid under the tables, off the books to be penalized because of their employer's choice. Additionally, there are people, um, there are some industries like for day laborers, uh, domestic workers where you don't have just one employer, right? You have multiple clients, you're cleaning multiple homes, you're nannying for or babysitting for multiple families. If you're a day laborer, you're doing one-off jobs. There's not someone you can go back to for an employer letter. And those folks are often paid in cash as well. And unless the Department of Labor um, provides some sort of self-attestation letter for these cash earners to say, hey, I lost my income, uh, to the same degree that the other excluded workers did uh, and get them access to that top tier of money, these workers are not going to be able to apply. And we had a training this month uh, regarding um, to help people who are going to help apl- uh, people apply to the fund. And this was the same thing that came up there. Like, how can we help people who are paid off the books? How can we help people who are paid in cash who don't have this documentation? Um, and the solution there is the commissioner of labor and incoming governor, Kathy Hochul, have the responsibility to create a solution for these workers. And the main ask is to create the opportunity to self-attest. Right. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. All right. And so you've been um, starting to help people apply. This this has just recently opened up. Uh, how is that going so far? Assembly member, what are you hearing from constituents? Bianca, how, how is it going? Um, what are other than what we just mentioned about some of the regulations and this ability mm-hmm. to self attest, are there other hurdles here? Are there other challenges, other changes that you're looking to make potentially under the new governor? Yeah, I mean, uh, Bianca hit the nail on the head when she talked about the cash earners. That's a huge concern. Uh, also, you know, the people who are coming in to fill out the applications, for example, have traditionally have issues um, supplying the documentation. Right. And so helping people to prepare adequately to begin the application and be able to begin and end the application um, correctly. There's also a lot of fear. So I I continue to hear uh, repeatedly like, oh, my employer is never going to give me a letter saying I work there. Right. And so they're even afraid to ask for the letters Uh, and, you know, really concerned about the safety of their families if they ask for the letter. Uh, So just calming some of those uh, you know, that stress that is built in uh, to say, you know, you have the right to ask for a letter. Um, Your employer can provide a letter and that this information is going to stay confined within the Department of Labor and not passed on to any federal authorities has been a huge part of the uh, application process and and the hurdles. Also, you know, this is a community that, you know, mostly uh, may not speak English, right? Uh, The the application is in multiple languages, but that also means that our staff needs support to support this community, uh, as well as it's an online application. So just having access to broadband and having access to uh, making sure that the, that these communities are not taken advantage of. We've already heard of instances where people are asking for cash to fill out the applications. So getting the information out that you do not have to have cash in order uh, to fill, you don't have to pay in order to fill out this application is something that we are in charge of. Uh, as Bianca said, you know, we're hoping that the incoming governor will make this a priority. I think she said already uh, in a, in a, in the press, that she will be looking at this fund as a priority. And uh, we're hoping that she will work with uh, Commissioner Reardon or whoever the next labor commissioner is, if there's a change there, to make sure that the self-attestation is part of it. Um, We also want to make sure that there is, you know, like specific attention paid to cases that are not your average cases. Some of these cases are very complex because they deal with people's immigration status and how they entered the U.S. and how they set up an ability to work. So we need there to be one-on-one attention where one-on-one attention is required. And I think that is something that, you know, we have to make sure is the priority and at the forefront of, uh, you know, the Department of Labor. Mm -hmm. Do you mind if I add some And assisting our nonprofits is the other thing. Uh, we have some nonprofits that have been awarded money through the state of New York to fill out the applications, uh, but it's not a lot of money either. So our nonprofits are at the forefront of, of filling out this application and, and they need all the help they can get. Thank you, Assembly Member. Go ahead, Bianca. Um, yeah, there's just a few more things I would add. One is that, you know, if we're thinking about immigrant New Yorkers, a lot of them aren't on the lease. Like there are there are workers who are not named on the lease or on their utility bills uh, because they rent a room or in the case of farm workers upstate, they're in employer provided housing, right? And so as part of the residency requirements, you can provide utility bills, medical bills, et cetera, in your name that were mailed to you. Um, but workers are having a really hard time 
getting that proof. And you have to have basically one letter that's dated before the pandemic and one letter that's more current to prove that you lived in New York before and that you still live here. It is really, really important. And there's precedent from other programs that the administration accept regular mail that is sent to people's homes or um, and not or, but and <laughs> affidavits from cohabitants. So if you're renting a room and other people are renting a room, they should be able to provide an affidavit that says, hey, I know this person lives here and has lived here for X amount of time. The New York City Municipal ID Program accepts those types of affidavits of a home address and affidavits from roommates to, pr to prove residency if the utility bill is not in the name of an applicant. And also the Department of Health permits uh, letters from roommates for people who are applying for mobile food vendor licenses. Those are just two examples. Um, there are other examples from other programs, but we feel very, very strongly that it's a priority for the state to accept those affidavits um, from excluded workers uh, so that they can prove their residency through that way as well. In terms of like the more technical aspect uh, or the, the application support that the assembly member talked a little bit about, um, there's been some issues with you can set an appointment for a staff member from the Department of Labor to call you back when you have an issue with your application. Folks aren't getting those callback numbers. People are applying in Spanish, Bangla, Arabic, whatever other language. The notifications that they're getting are being spent in, in, in English and they don't understand what they are, mm -hmm. uh, what they mean. Um, additionally, we were promised a 200 person call center that was like fully trained and ready to go from day one. The call center were not really clear on how staffed up it is and the adjudications of certain applications isn't consistent. One person will be told they have, they're all set to go, or another person who applies with the exact or their equivalent of those documents is told that they're missing things. So just making sure that the staff is trained, that the application works, um, that it is an, a, clear, a clearly language accessible um, program is like paramount in terms of the application support. Do you, uh, either of you or both of you want to see um, an option to not have to do this all online or is that not a, a, a huge hurdle here in 2021? I mean, it, it would seem like there's still some challenges likely for some members of eligible communities here, but it doesn't sound like that is a top priority for addressing any changes you want to see. I think that it's absolutely a plus to have a non-online option. Uh, the issue becomes uploading of documents and, and actually getting documents um, to the right person and following and tracking that delivery of documents. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if there was a way to do that, that that could work, um, I think it'd be helpful. Um, but in the meantime, it's just uh, assisting uh, those, you know, staffers and nonprofits that are actually doing this work to make sure that they have the support they need. Yeah, now, right. Oh, sorry, just said. The coalition right now isn't making that. We're like making the online application work, whether it's mm -hmm. through mobile application, like mobile phones or the iPads that uh, folks getting organizations getting money from the Department of Labor uh, are sent um, or people just bringing their laptops and stuff. We're trying to make that work as much as possible. Um, we just really want to make sure we get that solution for cash earners and residency folk and the residency issues I mentioned. And are there protections in the budget legislation around sharing of this information with federal authorities or is that more of a um understanding at this point that that's just not going to be part of how at least this uh current 
you know, in democratic administrations function? No, the Department of Labor, Labor is prohibited by law uh, from disclosing this, uh, the materials, the documents to government agencies. That includes ICE and Homeland Security, unless like there is like a, a legal requirement to do so by a court mm-hmm. or a judicial order. Specific judge. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically, but the law, we made sure that the law was um, protecting of, of this information. So you're listening to Max Politics here with Ben Max. I'm joined by Assemblymember Carmen De La Rosa of Upper Manhattan and Bianca Guerrero, the campaign coordinator of the Fund Excluded Workers Coalition. We're talking about the state's $2.1 billion excluded workers fund meant to uh, aid undocumented New Yorkers, especially who uh, lost work, lost wages during the pandemic and have not been eligible for unemployment relief. The applications for that fund have recently gone live through the New York State Department of Labor and uh, the assembly member's office, the offices of her colleagues, nonprofits, the coalition uh, that Bianca is coordinating and others are helping people to apply. We're talking about some of the details hurdles and such as we move forward. So we're, we're in just our last few minutes here together and, and please throw, throw anything in there that we've, we haven't gotten to as we, as we talk for our, our final few minutes here. But um, these are different programs. They have different rules. Uh, one includes federal funding. The other doesn't. Uh, they're on different timelines, but there is this um, state rental uh, relief program that has had its troubles that was launched a little earlier. Now we have this excluded workers fund that's been launched again, different timelines, different rules, but we've seen the legislature start to have some hearings on the rent relief program and its challenges. Assembly member, do you think you and your colleagues will have an oversight hearing or something coming up to bring the department of labor in and talk about the challenges and potential changes here? Well, I can't speak to whether that'll happen or not. I certainly think that that would be good for um, for us to have just transparency over what happens. You know, I've been dealing with the ERAP application delays in my own community for months. And, you know, I have one of those districts where displacement is a real threat because we have some of the highest rent-stabilized apartments and people are just afraid of eviction. And so we can't have a repeat of that, especially because these workers have been waiting over a year and a half to see one penny of support. So this is literally life or death. Like we've heard stories of workers who've had to choose whether to buy life-saving medication or not. Right. And so this is not something that is uh, we can put off much, much longer because people's lives are literally at risk. We also know workers whose main breadwinner, for example, died of COVID um, and they had no help, no burial help, no help. in you know, we've heard, I heard the heartbreaking story of a mom who had to literally tell her children, like Christmas is canceled. There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can give you. Um, school is about to start up again. And these families are still not seeing one cent. Um, So, you know, we are reaching, we've reached, we're past the point of a dire situation here and we can't see massive delays in the rollout. And I think we're all committed to that. And as you've noted, uh, incoming governor, Kathy Hochul has mentioned both the rent relief program and the excluded workers fund as priorities in terms of, you know, ending any and any backlogs, jam ups, uh, hurdles, and getting that all that money out to people who need it. Um, Bianca, is there anything you wanted to add there in terms of what you're hoping for in terms of 
additional push from the legislature, oversight, uh, Not, you know, yeah. any next steps here? We, we've made clear that to the Department of Labor that we expect clear and transparent data about who's applied, how many people are getting which tier of money, who's getting denied, is that limited to certain like people who are applying in particular languages, industries of workers, um, what are the most common mistakes, what are the geographic breakdowns of each of these questions so that we understand um, and make sure and can ensure with all of our tools, whether it's the coalition, legislators, the department itself, the, the incoming governor's um, administration, to ensure that every single excluded worker across the state like knows about this fund and is, it feels like they're able to apply. We don't want this to be concentrated in just one part of the state. Um, and, Speaking you know, of. Yeah, go ahead. Speaking of, all three of us uh, are based in New York City, and obviously New York City has the largest of virtually any population you might name, including undocumented immigrants in in New York. But um, where else are there, uh, where else across the state are we talking about there being large groups of expected eligible Mm -hmm. uh, people for this fund? Uh, Obviously, you mentioned earlier farm workers. There's there's farming in many, many uh, parts of, of New York. There's obviously some large immigrant and undocumented populations on Long Island, um, but where else, uh, you know, should we note that there's really some eligible, expected eligible people in the state? So we have some estimates from the Fiscal Policy Institute analysis that I mentioned before. So Long Island, we estimate uh, that based on the eligibility requirements. Uh, 35,000 total workers could benefit out of Long Island, 20,000 in the lower uh, Hudson Valley, which includes Westchester, um, around 9,000 in the Mount Hudson Valley, 9,000 out of North, uh, Northern and Western New York, and 4,000 in the capital region. Um, this is the initial estimate after the budget, so it may change now that we have some more specificity for the um, with the regulations, but um, that's substantial chunks of people across the state. So we really, really want to make sure that everyone is everyone across the state is, is taking advantage of it. All right, uh, Assemblymember, I wanted to ask you here, um, you know, just zoom out in our last couple of minutes. This has been uh, part of a larger picture of some major changes in the way New York state government has operated uh, since Democrats took control of both houses of the legislature, along with the Democratic governor. Um, the DREAM Act, uh, driver's licenses for all, the excluded workers fund. There's others that fit this larger category of more immigrant friendly policies. Um, you know, how would you sort of capture that change and the importance of it, uh, for, for people? That change is a transformative change, right? I think that even as we've heard um, Lieutenant Governor Hochul talk about her evolution on driver's license for all, I think that we can thank the advocates on the ground who have really put together literally movements um, to make sure that immigrants receive dignity in New York State. But we've also seen the legislature shift. Um, We've seen a shift in the type of representation that has come in from different districts. We have... um, a ton of immigrant uh, assembly members and senators. Uh, We also have, uh, you know, this pressure that really came to a a bubble with uh, the administration of Donald Trump and everything that we saw being done to immigrants. Um, For me, it's a a breath of fresh air. I am an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. I firmly believe 
that all of us have unique immigration stories. Um, how we got here um, is to me less relevant as to what we contribute to our communities. Um, and you know, I look forward to seeing New York State sort of at the leading edge of immigration justice uh, going forward under a Hoku administration, um, and you know, with newer colleagues of a more progressive mindset coming in as well. And Bianca, in closing, again, I should know we're talking here on Friday, August 20th, which is why you hear some of us continue to refer to Kathy Hochul as lieutenant governor and the incoming governor. By the time some of you hear this, she, she may already be governor. But um, Bianca, in terms of the larger picture here um, of uh, how New York approaches policies that especially relate to immigrant undocumented communities, Kathy Hochul becoming governor, are there other top priorities uh, along with sort of addressing some of these changes to how this fund is executed that you're going to be pushing to her, you know, trying to put on her agenda and the upcoming legislative agenda? Yeah, the the, the biggest, biggest priority for us for Kathy Hochul is making sure those cash earners, the folks who are not listed on their utility bills and the other residency issues that I mentioned are addressed as quickly as possible, that this fund operates and people can get support um, in the way in a consistent manner um, that gets the money out as quickly as, as possible. Um, in the coming months, I'm pretty sure that folks will be revealing some immigrant um, platforms as coalition coordinator. I am solely focused on the fund. So my biggest priority is making sure this goes as smoothly as possible. Um, so that we set a really good precedent for the rest of the country. We know Iowa, California, uh, Minnesota, New Jersey, and maybe Washington State already exploring or have launched uh, excluded worker fund campaigns. If we don't get this right here, they will have flawed models. So it's on Kathy Hochul. It's on Commissioner Reardon to get this right so that those other states and other excluded workers across the country uh, will benefit from the model that we set, the precedent that we set. Thank you. And assembly member, uh, Carmen De La Rosa, we should congratulate you on winning a recent city council primary. It looks like you'll be moving from the assembly uh, to the city council. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And it's bittersweet. Um, I'm going to miss the work, uh, but you know, we have a lot of work to do locally too. So I'm going to be pushing and holding it down from city hall, hopefully come January. All right. Well, this has been uh, an important conversation. Thank you both, Assemblymember Carmen De La Rosa and Bianca Guerrero, uh, the campaign coordinator of the Fund Excluded Workers Coalition. Thank you both for taking the time.